Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In her latest book on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, The Blood Road, The Women Who Defended It, The Legacy, Sherry Buchanan describes her journey in 2014 along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, a nearly 10,000-mile network across Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia that was built between 1945 and 1975. Her goal was to meet actors and participants from all sides of the Vietnam War, especially the women who played a critical role in building and defending the road. Sherry Buchanan is a journalist, historian, publisher, and an expert on Vietnamese art. Her book is published by Asia Inc. and brings her to our show now. Welcome. Well, nice to be with you, Leonard. Thank you for having me. Uh, is it called the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Vietnam? Uh, no, it's called the Chun Song Road after the uh, mountain range that uh, forms a natural border between Vietnam and Laos and um, is, I think it also did take on the, it did, was called the Ho Chi Minh Trail at some stage, but it was basically baptized Ho Chi Minh Trail by the South Vietnamese and the Americans. It's also been called the Blood Road. It is called the Blood Road by the North Vietnamese right. uh, because of all the suffering and death um, that happened on that road when uh, they had to build it under the carpet bombing started by the Americans in 1965. So it now, of was, course, it was a Go blood ahead, road. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, all the terminology is different. They call that war between 1965 and 1975 the American War. They do, and they, they call the first war uh, against the French uh, the French War. Uh, so to them, uh -huh. it was basically defending their country against um, the French occupiers, and then the Americans who, in their mind, just replaced the colonial French. So both How wars long? are... Uh, really, one war to them. I mean, to the the communist side who basically won the war. Now, how long were they a French colony? They were a French colony for about seventy years, um, mm -hmm. from the late nineteenth century until nineteen fifty four. I guess, or you know, I mean, the they the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. In uh, 1946, and fought for nine years against the French, and um, until the victory at Dien Bien Phu in 1954, when the French uh, basically lost. Hmm. Well, of course, uh, they had uh, a long history of fighting for their independence. The Chinese occupied Indochina for over a thousand years, from uh, 111 BC to 939 AD. Uh, and then, of course, in came the French uh, with Indochina. Um, you uh, had gone there before this trip that you're writing about here. Uh, your first visit was when you were stationed in Hong Kong as a columnist in 1991. Had the country That's been opened up to foreigners by then? It had opened up. At, um, I think in 1986, they started opening up their economy and um, their cultural environment to foreigners. Um, 
Was Ho Chi Minh still alive? Uh, Ho Chi Minh? Yeah, was he still alive at that time? No, he died in 1969. He died before mm -hmm. he saw a reunified uh, Vietnam. Yeah, mm -hmm. he died quite early during the Vietnam War. Your book has many illustrations. Is that trip, that first trip, when you developed an interest in the art and the culture of the country? Yeah, it was. I, I went to Vietnam uh, to the first to meet an artist who I discovered had been painting in Hanoi under the bombings in 1972. And I thought that was just such a, an extraordinary revelation that um, while we were bombing uh, Vietnam, there was a, a whole cultural and intellectual life go, that managed to, to go on in spite of... Uh, the ferocity and intensity of our efforts. And I just found it extraordinarily uplifting to find that there were artists there who were painting. Yes, and this particular artist was... Well, why did the... Go ahead, finish. Yeah, no, this particular artist was, uh, was extremely interesting because he was not at all an official artist because like all communist governments, they had official artists, musicians, you, uh, poets, writers who worked for the state. There was no private sector or galleries or anything like that. And he had uh, basically, he was, he was an official film actor and script writer, but was so distressed at the war that he decided that the only way he could express this distress was to start painting uh, on his own, which is what he did. And he himself had had fought the French War uh, as a young uh, soldier. He was, I think he was 17 when he went to war. And um, when the Second War came along, he just uh, had to express his, uh, maybe you would call it dissent today, but it was mm -hmm. just a, a, a expression from the heart. As, you, as I said, again, there was no market for art. There was no galleries, so if you, it was kind of art in its purest form, which we don't know today anymore. But didn't uh, North Vietnam embed artists to sketch and paint the scenes around them? There you were, you, you there would were. have assumed that they would have preferred photographers like most other countries. They did have photographers as well. Uh, they mm. did have official photographers um, as well, but um, there was a great shortage of film and it was very difficult to get since the, the war was being fought along uh, uh, hundreds of miles of, uh, of roads. There was a great um, difficulty of getting the film back to get it developed in Hanoi. And there was great shortage. So there were photographers. And in fact, there's a, there's a, there's a fantastic book of North Vietnamese mm. photographers um, the, published by Les Arènes, a French publishing house. And, uh, but alongside, they had uh, artists as well. So they had both. They also had poets, musicians, uh, entertainers, uh, violinists, um, mm -hmm. writers, uh, a whole intellectual group of people who were embedded uh, with, with the troops. Now, much of that art depicted women uh, did that make you wonder at first why that was? I did. And I, at first I thought, oh, well, well, you know, soldiers, maybe they kind of made 
made them feel good to think of women. I thought I completely thought of it as a. I never imagined uh, that uh, they were actually they were actually depicting reality, and the reality was that the number of women involved in the war was was huge, uh, almost as you know. So, but at the at first, I just thought it was just um, memories of of a girlfriend or or something to make them feel better. Um, and it's only when I started looking into it that I discovered that this, this, uh, these young women between 17 and 24 were posted on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which was this uh, network of roads that went through the Chungsung Mountains we were just talking about, the border between Laos and Vietnam, which was very, very thick jungle ravines and uh, steep uh, peaks and they were stationed there permanently away from home for sometimes years at a time and these we're talking are about 60,000 youth volunteers between right. the ages of, of 17 and 24 that's a lot of, of people uh, a lot. and there were some uh, of course also some men but as the war got fiercer in the south most of the men were sent to the front in South Vietnam to, during the offensives, and the women stayed at the stations on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, uh, which was another kind of front because that's where all the bombing was concentrated, the U.S. bombing was concentrated, to try to destroy the roads and, and cut the supplies of men and um, weapons, ammunition, going down the trail to the battlefronts in South Vietnam. Weren't more bombs dropped on Vietnam than on all of Europe during World War II? Many of them, as you say, on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, and not just the, the, the bombs you might have imagined, but 1,000-pound bombs and cluster yes. bombs. I think it's very hard to imagine what that was like. I mean, I tried to find, I did find some of the bomb craters, which were um, sort of swallowed up all entire houses. It was, it was quite something. And one of the jobs of, of the women vol youth volunteers was to decommission these bombs. Hmm. Um, Among all the other things that they were asked to do, like build the road and tunnels, uh, tend to the camps, carry heavy military supplies and equipment, transport food, uh, fight side by side with the men, nurse uh, the, the wounded and bury the dead. So they were doing a lot of things that you, you that would surprise us. Uh, is this a hidden history or do, do the Vietnamese know it well? The Vietnamese know it well and many of the women are celebrated there as, as uh, heroes of the people, um, men, but there were so many that I, even in Vietnam, I think a lot of it uh, remains to be told, but it, um, they, many were rewarded with um, medals and, you know, the awards from the state and, and it's, it's well known, it's well known in Vietnam, yes. But it's little known I found outside and I thought it was something that should be told and brought to light. And um, they deserve a place in, in our 
historical accounts of the Vietnam War. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Sherry Buchanan, whose latest book is On the Ho Chi Minh Trail, The Blood Road, Defended It, The Legacy, published by her own publishing house, which has published a number of books, um, mostly of uh, Vietnamese art, called Asia, Inc. Uh, you've described this book as part travelogue, part history, part reflective meditation. What was your initial goal for the second visit to Vietnam? I uh, wanted to to share the... I mean, I guess I was shocked at, at what we had done. I, I didn't realize the magnitude of what we had done. It's still 40 years on that this was uh, an ongoing problem and that we hadn't done anything about it. And um, I'm talking about Agent Orange. I'm talking about mm. unexploded ordnance. I'm talking about uh, two million civilian dead. Um, we only uh, admit to 30,000 killed. Um, and I just thought uh, nothing, no compensation, nothing. Um, and I just thought, you know, I wanted to bring this to light and I, and I thought we should do something about it. Um, and me as an individual, I could do my part by just making this trip and telling the stories. And I thought it, was, it I thought it would touch people more to just hear about the stories rather than the big numbers. So that's why I did the trail and uh, hmm. and wanted well, to happen, share the message. Haven't uh, some of the women? who continue to suffer from the results of Agent Orange, sued American uh, uh, chemical companies in French courts? She did. One woman uh, yeah. uh, did in May, and unfortunately the, the case was uh, thrown out of the court, um, saying the French court, I think, said that they couldn't... Um, uh, on uh, American military actions abroad. And uh, she's appealing, but um, there, there's, there are other ways we could uh, do something. I mean, again, the, the Vietnamese also sued in the U.S. court in the 80s, and uh, that was rejected. So they haven't been very successful in suing the uh, companies. But there is a bill in Congress that would give... Um, Vietnamese victims of Agent Orange, the same level of compensation that was given to American veterans. And I think that would be a good route to pursue as one way to um, offer compensation and equally um, clean up the dioxin hotspots, which we've started to do. We've done two, but there are 28, so there's much more to do. I, we did a show uh, not so long ago about the use of dioxin in the United States today. Interestingly, right. even though it's banned as a weapon of war, it's being used uh, to, as a, a way of deforesting some areas, mostly in the American Northwest. That's amazing. It's a shocker. Still in use, yeah. Did, did you begin the uh, your trip by searching for the women you'd come across in the posters and the war drawings by the Vietnamese war painters? Yes, I did. I uh, talked to some of the war artists again, and then I um, searched for the women. 
And I also left it to chance since it was a just a, I thought it would be a good combination to uh, to have a bit of both. So you and just knocked uninvited on, on women's doors. I was uh, yes, I kind of pitched up and uh, hoped for mm-hmm. the best. I, I have to tell <laughs> you that I didn't know what was going to happen. So, but it I was always always welcome, or made to feel welcome, and would spend many hours. Uh, uh, talking and I think they enjoyed the visits. Uh, they seemed to really relish being able to tell their war stories. I think just like in Europe after World War II, um, they didn't really talk about it with their children or uh, peers because they wanted the children to move on and to have a, a, a foreigner and a former enemy. Um, I think was also they felt that was a sign of respect that I had made that journey and that they were able to share their stories with me. So it was a very, very rewarding and moving time that we spent together and uplifting in a way because they were so um, joyous, uh, forgiving and uh, willing to have moved on and made new lives. And I found it a very uplifting trip. Of course, there are many who um, had t- very tough times and never married because they had problems or, I mean, as, uh, couldn't have children um, and had uh, no jobs and were So it was, it was tough. There were many for which it was very, very tough. But most of the ones I met were... Um, recognized heroines and uh, had, had continued to give to their communities after the war. I get the feeling that the worst part of it was that uh, they very generously offered you Vietnamese green tea, which was not something that you liked to drink very much. Yeah, no, I'm Require not a taste. lover. Yes, that is true. But I made, I, I did my best. I'm a coffee drinker, as you know. Um, mm. But it was, it was a minor, minor problem, I guess. Very. Well, some bitter. of the sort. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Well, those, they also gave you talk, coffee. I don't know, they think it's the best thing going. I, I just can't. I can't do it. Although mm-hmm. most Vietnamese food is delicious, green tea is mm-hmm. one of the things I, I'm just not fond of. Some of the, the were they very open? Because some of the stories they told you, well, for example, the ones about burying the dead are horrific. Yes, like they um, they were uh, very open. I mean, they were. I didn't know what to expect again because there is censorship in Vietnam and um, you just don't know. So that I think maybe the timing was good because they're now in their six, late 60s, early 70s. They're retired from whatever jobs they might have had if they worked in the government or civil service. And I think they, they felt uh, free to... Um, to share the stories with me. So I, I, I was yeah. quite surprised, actually, because I'd worked in Vietnam for quite a long time. I think where I had most problems was in the South, where the um, women 
from the South Vietnamese side, uh, I, I just would not talk. And that just is it still me. a problem because uh, people yeah. uh, um, don't sensitive. want to necessarily reveal which side that they were fighting on or supporting. Yeah, I think that's a problem. I also think they they just don't the they just have to stay under the radar and um, and not discuss. Uh, the difficulties of reunification, re-education camps. The, you know, that was a very dark period of Vietnamese history. So I just, all that is still is still quite taboo, although they're starting to talk about it, and I, and I hope they will for, for their own sake, I guess. Well, I suspect some of the stories... Uh, are difficult for them to talk about. For example, uh, they, they couldn't recognize the bodies or find all the parts of, of the dead. And what one platoon leader stationed at the Mujia Pass described how they had to smell human flesh in order to find the remains. Yes, Ooh. I found that really a very chilling detail. And I, um, I was... Um, Quite taken aback, I, but I think in the details you can you, it kind of illustrates more than anything, more than sort of numbers and and the weight of bombs and numbers of bombs. That small detail mm -hmm. can kind of bring you to a, the situation that they were in, and and uh, leads to great empathy. Write about it. We recognize yeah, what, what we what we do, and I I do think we should recognize what we do, because okay, I know we're now in a pandemic. We have a lot of other problems. The U.S. has its own problems, but I do think that we should um, be able to have some empathy for the people we. Um, inflict our our wars on and uh, that was kind of why I went to try to get that message through well often when we talk about the war we talk about how it polarized the American public without much thought about what was happening to the Vietnamese people Yes, I, I, I agree with that. I always thought, you know, it was more about us. I mean, we're, we're wonderful narcissists in that way. It's mm -hmm. like what it did to us. And, and yes, I, under, I mean, of course, that, and that's probably a question of time as well, because, I mean, uh, you know, American veterans had their own uh, terrible stories, and, and, and uh, it's, it's very difficult to discuss what happened to the enemy when your own soldiers have, have gone through such horrors themselves. And I think it's a, that's the way it is in wars. It takes a, a bit of time to just um, be able to, to look at the other side and say, wait a minute, you know, what did we do there? And what should we do to, to remedy that? You met some American veterans along the way. What were they doing there? Oh, well, Chuck Searcy was just this uh, wonderful American veteran who, who uh, I think he said very early on, knew there was something badly wrong with this war. He, he'd gone off 
um, like so many, uh, believing in that he was bringing civilization to Vietnam and patriotic, idealistic, and quickly saw that this was definitely not the case. And um, once he got out, I, he completely, he always wanted to go back. And um, as many did, although some never wanted to go back, but some who did um, thought about it, but he actually did it. And he was offered a job at the Veterans Administration in Washington, but uh, instead said, look, I'm going to back to Vietnam. And he created an NGO with the local government in the Quan Chi province, which was the province that was the most bombed. It was at the DMZ uh, zone uh, in South Vietnam, and it was, it was just attacked uh, every single time and had the, the biggest amount of bombs dropped on it. And um, huge problem with unexploded ordnance. And um, Chuck went back and uh, started this NGO with the local authorities. It's now become a model throughout Vietnam. And he's, uh, um, once the Pentagon released the uh, grid of where they bombed, he was able to, they were able to kind of formalize the system and and they can pinpoint where the most bombs have been dropped so you're not losing time you're not losing money you can kind of target these these areas and uh it's just a very successful successful operation and i was honored to be able to go out with a team and see how they operated and it was quite quite something you walked through minefields with the demolition teams that were hunting for unexploded ordnance Yes, that's it. I, I think at the time, I, I, I don't know, maybe I thought I was being mature, but I mean, I don't know. I, I later realized that this was quite a danger. Um, and, and sadly, one of their uh, team leaders was killed uh, hmm. a few months later. And he was very, very expert uh, in his field. So this was, it's a dangerous occupation. Some of the other stories you heard are very moving. You, you write about a, a young mother who, after a day's work at Radio Hanoi, went onto the roof of her building with a rifle to shoot at the enemy planes. And after the bombing raid, she went into the street to collect bodies that had been exploded into pieces. And when she got home, she was so, so traumatized, she was unable to breastfeed her baby. I know, I found that really, really uh, moving. Again, a, a very small detail, but really brings home exactly what war can do. And she was, she's a wonderful character, a very successful sculptor who now lives in Ho Chi Minh City and very joyous, uh, uplifting lady. So that was a nice um, way to to see someone who had gone through that kind of trauma uh, come out uh, strong, creative, talented, and, and did well in life. So some have recovered because uh, would you say that a whole generation experienced physical and psychological trauma? Yeah, I would. Mm -hmm. um, I think it really was uh, the, the entire population because they were all involved in one way or another. 
Uh, in uh, North Vietnam, I think 1.7 million women were defending their towns and cities. And in the South, 1 million women were uh, had joined the Viet Cong, the, what they call the resistance against the South Vietnamese government and uh, American and South Vietnamese forces. So that's a, a big number of people oh, just on the women's side. And the men, of, of course, have their own, have their own traumas. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. A little Vietnamese pop music from the 1960s, so um, the country became kind of westernized. Um, I'm talking with Sherry Buchanan, who is the author of several books, including uh, Tran Tung Tin, Paintings and Poets, Poems from Vietnam, Vietnam Zippos, American Soldiers Engravings and Stories, Mekong Diaries, Viet Cong Drawings and Stories, and Vietnam Posters. She is a journalist who... Uh, has worked for the Wall Street Journal, the International Herald Tribune, uh, and uh, she. We're talking about her latest book, which is uh, published by Art Asia Inc. It's called "On the Ho Chi Minh Trail: The Blood Road, The Women Who Defended the Defended It, and the Legacy." Um, now, you mentioned uh, that. Yeah, the Vietnamese had a long history of fighting for independence. You visited the the temple of Lady Chu, uh, which is dedicated to a woman who led a rebellion at 19 against the Chinese in the third century. Yes, that's that's correct. I mean, she's a legend, um, and um, I think it was first recorded in um, written form in the 19th century, but the. the her history has been passed down word uh, word to mouth throughout the centuries, and uh, this temple is dedicated to to her, and she was quite a lady, from what I can tell. So <laughs> and, Vietnamese well, women have been brave for a long time. Yeah, um, there were, and the, she's not the only one. There's there's the Chung sisters. There's several um, who who were warriors. I think maybe it was just a question of, of uh, having to defend themselves against constant uh, invaders. Well, you were an invader, You were, but you were accompanied by two traveling companions. Were they both Vietnamese? Yeah, they were. One was uh, South Vietnamese American, and the other one was uh, Vietnamese from the post-war generation. So I thought we were a good trio. Um, and Nam was um, left Saigon when he was about seven on the last day on the last boat out of Saigon and uh, grew up in the U.S. So we, um, we kind of represented all sides of the war, which I thought was, was, uh, was good. 
And did that, did that uh, in some way have an effect, do you think, on your conversations with the people who you were meeting? I think it did. I think they probably, um, you know, saw that we really were uh, wanted to cover all sides, and that um, I think what one event that was wonderful was um, Nam was obviously dialoguing in 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 a, in a different way, and and because he can be recognized because of his accent in Vietnamese, as South. Is from the south, and also Viet Q, which are the ones who left, who for decades were branded traitors and collaborators, and um, all that seemed to have subsided somewhat. And he was very encouraged by uh, being welcomed as well as a as a brother, as he said, as one museum director called him in the north and i think that was a, a lovely gesture of a small gesture of reconciliation one of our listeners jeffrey has written uh, i've heard from friends who traveled there that they witnessed very little hostility to americans is that your experience how do you explain it yes i i, I asked about that uh, over the all the years i I was there, and I think uh, I, there's several explanations. I mean, it, one of the positive things of Ho Chi Minh's propaganda was to to tell the people that you know it wasn't the individual Americans who were attacking them, and that, but it was the U.S. government. So they they kind of could differentiate between. Hmm. Um, government and uh, the people. And I think also the, the protests in the 60s and 70s showed them that, you know, so many of the American people were on their side. So they never had that kind of sense of, uh, I mean, it, unlike with Germany, where after the war, all, all Germans were Nazis for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen there. And um, that I think that ability to forgive was was um, help them move on I think if you you have hatred anger and want revenge it's um, it stops you from uh, moving on I also think it's because they won the war they achieved the goal they set out to, to achieve um, and I think it's also a, a part of their Buddhist, Side, although they're, they're supposed to be communist, Buddhism is still very much ingrained in the in the culture and the society, and they feel that anger only hurts you and not the one person you're angry at. And I think that's a very uh, helpful way to to live your life. So I think all those three things uh, combined probably explain this um, but obviously there are some who haven't who can't you know if things were of too course. terrible obviously um, well ironically didn't Ho Chi Minh begin his pronouncement of a new state by quoting the US Declaration of Independence he did well that's a that's kind of a, a, 
he well he had contacted the americans i know you, you one shouldn't look at history in terms of ifs it's a very dangerous game but i do have to say that in 1919 when he, uh, ho chi minh was not a communist and he was not a socialist he was working on a ship going around the world trying to find a better way for his people when he went back and he wrote to the american delegation to the uh, Woodrow Wilson and um, basically just um, with a very simple manifesto of, of what he was looking for, which was basically equal rights for Vietnamese under a very uh, brutal French colonial regime. And he was just asking for what we would call, you know, normal civil liberties. Unfortunately, nobody ever replied to his letter, and you just wonder that he, you know, he had not joined any socialist party or communist party at that time, and um, things might have been different. He did write to them in French, so maybe <laughs> in translation. <laughs> but, and again, in... Um, in uh, 1945, he, he asked for help, uh, support from the Americans against the French colonial power, but um, didn't get a reply. So I'm curious. If, here, go ahead. Things might have been different. I know a lot of other things happened along the way, but it's it's worth a thought. I'm curious about why the, the names of the, the fighting force changed. It was the Viet Minh who fought against the French during Vietnam's War of Independence and from uh, 1946 to 1954. Why was the name changed to the National Liberation Front, the Viet Cong? Well, the Viet Minh was an abbreviation of the uh, National Alliance, uh, an abbreviation from the Vietnamese uh, word for the National Alliance, Vietnam Doc Lap, but whereas Viet, so it was their name for themselves. I mean, it's how they called themselves. Whereas Viet Cong was a abbreviation for Vietnamese communists. So it was a derogatory term given to the National Liberation Front by the South Vietnamese and the Americans. And uh, to this day, it's not, it's, uh, it's pejorative. It was, uh, it kind of, you know, has a, a kind of negative connotation. So after but the- they were uh, the same the, people, as you- <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, they were the same people. Um, There's just a, a, a line that cuts through the country uh, but it, it's uh, it's arbitrary in a way, isn't it? Uh, didn't the uh, 1954 Geneva Agreements, uh, following the uh, victory, the Vietnamese victory at Dien Bien Phu, stipulate the reunification of North and South Vietnam? What happened? Yeah, it did. Um, well, the Americans and the South Vietnamese opposed that, um, and. It stipulated that the agreement stipulated national elections to be held by 1956. And um, 
we were afraid of a communist victory by Ho Chi Minh. He was such a popular leader. He was the father of Vietnamese independence and uh, basically opposed the whole and basically said no fair elections could be held with a communist involved. And uh, that was the end of that. So the elections were never held and the, the Geneva Accords uh, were not upheld. Uh, you have to note, though, that the Americans and the South Vietnamese did not ratify those that those accords, but they did say that they would abide by the the spirit of the accords, which they didn't, and basically that started the whole war. So, um, so and was so, Ho Chi Minh seen as kind of the Vietnamese version of Mao Zedong at the time? Well, let me see. Was that the problem? The more, you know, the spread of communism? From the American point of view, yes. From the American point of view, he was seen as as a communist uh, leader. And um, they didn't want a unified communist Vietnam. End of story. That's it. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Sherry Buchanan, whose latest book, published by Asia Inc., is On the Ho Chi Minh Trail, The Blood Road, The Women Who Defended It, The Legacy. Uh, I interrupted you. (laughs) Finish your thought, please. No, Leonard, I've lost my thought now. I think I said what I wanted to say. (laughs) Well, so although there were supposed to be elections in 1956, didn't President Eisenhower concede in his book Mandate for Change that he was told that 80 percent of the people would have voted for Ho Chi Minh? And so he just didn't want that to happen? Yeah, exactly. They just didn't want that to happen. They wanted to, um, I guess, have a, a, a Korean solution. The Korean solution, which is, again, a divided... South Korea, right, to keep it divided. Now, the Vietnamese pose no real threat to anybody's security, so why was the U.S. all that concerned? It isn't like uh, they were responsible for a 9-11 or something like that. I know, it's really... I, I think for us today, it's really difficult to fathom this. I think you have to put yourself back in the context of that time and just remember how, uh, you know, the, the containment of communism is such an ideological goal that I, I, unless there's some hidden reason that I haven't discovered, I, that, that was it. I mean, we had, we were terrified that, um, um, China, Chinese communism would spread, which indeed it did, but only to Vietnam. And maybe it was, in, you know, the, they wanted Vietnam as another Philippines. It's a strategic, it was a strategic importance to us. That's the only uh, logical thing to think. Or, or was it just hysterical anti-communism? Uh, or, neo, or what about neo-colonialism? Then once, I mean, once they did make uh, friends with the Chinese in 1972, well, the war ended pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, so. 
Well, it feels as much neo-colonialist as anti-communist, but well, uh, then uh, the United States installed. I've always had problems with pronouncing names when there are two consonants next to each other. Ngo Din Diem. Diem. We installed his puppet government in South Vietnam after the French were defeated. Now, he was a, a, a figure of the authoritarian right. He was. And um, he, his regime was, was, was brutal. I mean, he had a system of... Uh, prison camps and torture regime that was absolutely uh, uh, despicable. And um, that's why most of, he, he basically took over the same, same uh, prison regime that the French had instituted, uh, which included routine torture um, and locking people up in tiger cages and arresting any uh, Viet Cong sympathizer or that they might suspect. Um, which is why, mo and this was happening in rural Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam is basic, was 80% agrarian country, and which is why most of the countryside was uh, always backing the uh, Ho Chi Minh. I mean, they... they detested the, the South Vietnamese government and the Americans that came along with them. So that was one of the reasons that the rural, rural countryside was uh, sided with the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong in South Vietnam. Well, how Jim did... Was, uh, was, was a, yeah, Go it was ahead. a nasty regime, yeah. How did uh, fighting uh, break out? It, it was first in the South and then uh, uh, expanded to the North by 1965? The Viet Minh, who had stayed in um, South Vietnam, in, in the, the South of Vietnam after partition, were persecuted by the Diem regime as communists. So it started pretty quickly. Um, so they were fighting it alone down there, so to speak. Um, and I think Ho Chi Minh and the Politburo were still thinking that negotiations were possible and that they would be able to re reunite the country by peaceful means. But once the elections didn't take place um, and uh, repression or uh, against the Viet Minh in South Vietnam by the Diem regime got uh, further, you know, got, became worse. Uh, that's and the the South was basically asking the North to to, to intervene. I think in, in nineteen by nineteen fifty nine, Ho Chi Minh and, and his Politburo decided that they would start uh, giving some support to the South, not not sending their own troops or anything like that, but just and that's when they started uh, building the Ho Chi Minh Trail to transport 
supplies and fighters and to the south to 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 bolster them their position against the South Vietnamese government. Now, the on your drive through Vietnam and Laos, you also saw many beautiful things. You described the Trong Son Mountains, the Phong Na Caves, ancient citadels, Confucian temples, the Khmer Temple of Wat Phu, uh, which is at the, the westernmost point of the trail in Laos. Um, so these things uh, survived the war, or have they been uh, fixed up in the year the years since? Yes, I think... Um... Most have been uh, rebuilt and fixed up um, after the war. The host citadel is, is pretty pretty destroyed, and Hue has been rebuilt. So most of, I mean, it's amazing that anything survived, but a few things did. But they have rebuilt them. Um, and what Fu, I think, was, I, I, don't think was ever touched by the war. I think it was just uh, time had uh, had not been kind to it, but it's being restored, and that, that is well worth a visit. It's on the overlooking the Mekong River, and it's um, uh, the northernmost uh, Khmer temple of the same of uh, Angkor Wat. Because there was an imperial, clear imperial road that connected uh, their temples. In 1995, 20 years after the formal end of the war, the United States and the, the Socialist Republic of Vietnam established diplomatic relations. But that was four years after your first visit to the country. So you, when you went there the first time, what, were you uh, breaking any U.S. laws? Oh, no, I, I don't think there was any, um, it wasn't like Cuba, mm -hmm. which I think um, was against a U.S. law. But the Cubans didn't, didn't stamp your passport mm -hmm. very considerately. <laughs> so, um, but um, I think it, there was no ban on, on Americans traveling to Vietnam that I, I knew of, but and there, weren't any, there weren't many there. Although there was Suzanne Lecht had uh, was an Ameri is an American citizen who is, uh, started a gallery there, one of the most extraordinary galleries of contemporary art in Hanoi, and I think she she came there before before I did, um, and. Um, Never really had any problems on the Vietnamese side. Sharia, we're pretty much out of time, but I did want to ask you one other question. Hasn't the Biden administration encouraged businesses like Apple to move their production lines from China to Vietnam? So are we friends with Vietnam now? Yes, we are friends with Vietnam now. And I think Vietnam is friends with us because um, they have they kind of uh, you know small country caught between superpowers and they like to have friends on both sides so they could keep the chinese at bay uh, they're having quite a few problems with the chinese in the spratly islands who they claim to be their own 
and the Chinese are investing a lot in uh, Vietnam, so they are kind of hedging their bets and uh, friends with the U.S. as a result. My great thanks to Shari Buchanan, whose latest book on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, The Blood Road, The Women Who Defended It, The Legacy, is published by Asia Inc. and distributed in this country by the University of Chicago Press. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. I'm, uh, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are surprised to learn some of this history. Thank you, Leonard. I'm really happy to be able to share some of this on your show and hope that listeners will be interested in hearing more. <laughs> and looking at the art. Well, and that, looking but... at the art definitely was, uh, is the way to, to see it. Uh, and that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to live engineer Reggie Johnson and to Leonard at Leonard Lopate at Large executive producer Jesse Lent for all of their contributions throughout the week. You can access our archive of over 500 shows at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take a minute or so to ask you to support the station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this whole thing going. So please step up and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212. 212- 209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Please do it right now to keep the kind of unique in-depth content we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And one great way to support the station throughout the year is to become a sustaining member for $10 or $15 or however much you want a month, what we call a BAI buddy. But however you choose to donate, please make sure that 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 you make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And, and a big thanks to everyone who's already helping to keep us on the air with their generosity. We hope that you'll join in again on Monday when journalist, author, and regular contributor to this program, Michael Patrick McDonald, will join us to discuss the annual Orangeman's Day demonstrations happening across the UK that day. Have a great weekend. See you on Monday.